So I, I'm guessing you will notice the signboard on the way into the supper tonight. It said something like, Borscht with yummy rye bread and condiments and metta. And I thought, metta has got to be the best condiment ever. I started wondering, what would every meal be like if it were served with a condiment of metta? If everyone in the world got to have a little taste of that with every bite of food they ever ate, I think it would be a very different world. So tonight I'm not actually talking about metta itself, but I'm going to talk about something that might be a close relative. And for many of you, this will be a topic that's uh, very familiar. And for some of you, it might be something that's quite new and relatively foreign. But either way, what I hope is that uh, you might, um, I might offer some new perspectives on this topic, which is the topic of dana or generosity, as it's usually translated. And most people who are following this path of practice, of insight practice, commonly first hear about dana at the end of a retreat or, or a workshop. And commonly at that point in the proceedings, uh, there's what's known as a, a dana talk given by the managers or a representative of the teachers. And usually in that talk, they remind us that the teachings have been freely offered, that the teachers haven't been paid to teach, and that the center exists only because of the financial support that we and others have given to it. And of course, all this is true. And most meditation centers and monasteries, <coughs> bless you, most meditation centers and monasteries in the West, they are non-profit organizations. And their existence does often depend on income from dana, from donations. So this is a very important aspect of dana, because without it, for example, this very retreat wouldn't have been able to happen. This center probably wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the generosity of so many people who've supported it over so many years. And some of you here on this retreat, I understand, have been coming to Temawata for many years, and so you will probably have seen over those years all kinds of improvements that have happened over time as a result of perhaps yours and many other people's generosity. So this is a very beautiful and important aspect of dana. And in addition to what we might think of as this more local dana, there's also the generosity of millions, uncounted numbers of people, unknown people, who have helped support the transmission of these Buddhist teachings since his death so many centuries ago. And again, without all of that sustained collective effort, none of us will be sitting here tonight. I find that quite incredible when I stop and, and think about that. Just how is it possible that here we are in 2017 in Temawata in New Zealand, exploring the words that the Buddha spoke in India over two and a half thousand years ago? It's because there's been a living tradition of people who've received these teachings, they've benefited from them, and then they've offered them, wanted to share it freely. So generation after generation after generation over many centuries, thousands of years. 
And all of us here are really participating in this tradition of dana as we sit here this evening. So it's traditional that the teachings are freely offered. And as I think many of you know, Greg and I are maintaining that tradition as best we can, teaching without a fixed fee. And uh, I, I know that Greg's a pretty humble person and he hasn't told me directly why he came to this retreat, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't for the money or for the fame. But something motivated him to come here, to leave his home in Arizona, his partner and his friends, to put up with the jet lag, and to put up with being away from home for so many weeks so that he could be here on this retreat with us. And knowing Greg as I do, I'm pretty sure that big part of what motivated him is his own um, dedication to generosity, to dana. So we can look around, we can feel within ourselves, and we can see in our external environment here, perhaps touch into this power, this spirit of generosity that's a, a powerful and at times a mysterious force that somehow managed to bring us all here together this evening. And I wanted to talk about dana as a, as this, uh, in a more full way because in sometimes it feels like in the Western context particularly, it can get sort of collapsed into just talking about offering money at the end of a retreat. And this can set up an unconscious tendency to see dana as some kind of you know, customary thing that we're expected to do. So we do it, you know more or less willingly. And it is true that the English word donation comes from the same root as the Pali word dana, but it has a much wider range of meanings than donation does in English. So tonight I'd like to explore dana as uh, more fully as a spiritual practice. Because in the Buddha's teachings, dana is actually presented as the foundation for the entire spiritual path. Rather than something that's tacked on at the end of the practice, it's taught as the crucial first step along the way. It's not only a beginning practice, though. It's not just for beginners. Like every other aspect of the Buddha's teachings, it's something that we can keep endlessly refining throughout our whole lives. So it's both the foundation of the training and it's also the ultimate expression of it. The Buddha taught a graduated path and he always started by talking about the importance and the benefits of practicing generosity. And I imagine that he began with generosity because it's pretty much a universally appreciated quality. I think as far as I know, every society in the world, every religious tradition values generosity. So by starting with this as the foundation of the path, the Buddha was on safe ground. It's hard to argue against the value of generosity. So when the Buddha was teaching new people, he first established a sense of connection and commonality with them by talking about generosity. Then when he had some sense that they understood the value of it, he went on to talk about the importance and benefits of non-harming the practice of ethics or sila, 
So you might remember on opening night, I talked about these five precepts that are rooted in the commitment to non-harming. And I mentioned that the Buddha saw these taking the precepts as offering a gift. He saw them as a gift, an act of generosity. He talked about the gift of fearlessness. So when we're committed to non-harming, people sense that they can trust us. They have nothing to fear from us. And we ourselves have nothing to fear. We don't need to live in anxiety about being caught out or found out, punished or blamed or shamed. So this commitment to ethical conduct is also an aspect of generosity. So coming back to the Buddha's path of practice, once he felt that people had understood the benefit of dana, the benefit of sila or ethical conduct, then he went on to give them teachings about meditation. And these are the last two aspects of the way this path is sometimes divided. So samadhi and panya. Samadhi refers to meditation practices, those that calm and still the mind. And panya literally means wisdom. It also refers to insight practice or vipassana, as well as more broadly to wisdom or understanding generally. So it refers to the kind of insight or wisdom that leads to nibbana, complete freedom of heart and mind. So you might see from that graduated path that it starts with generosity, goes to ethical conduct, then calming and concentrating the mind, setting up the conditions that lead to insight, to deep wisdom. The path doesn't stop there, though. Because when the Buddha saw that people had realized some degree of freedom, he often instructed them to go out and to benefit others, to teach or otherwise be of service. So in this way, the Buddha's path begins with generosity and it culminates in generosity, the gift of the Dharma, which is said to be the highest gift. So, dana is also a path of practice that in its own right powerfully supports many other skillful mental qualities. For example, it helps to lessen greed. It can strengthen our capacity for contentment. It also helps to develop renunciation, sometimes known as non-addiction, so not being dependent on material comforts for our happiness. So the practice of dana brings many benefits, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about the nuances of what the Buddha meant by dana, because it's not necessarily obvious when we're steeped in mainstream Western values, which are so thoroughly based in capitalism. And with this kind of conditioning, we tend to assess generosity in terms of how, uh, of what material or financial value the gift is. In the Buddha's teachings, though, he used a different measure. He assessed the uh, strength of someone's generosity by the intention or the spirit behind the act of giving. And it's the intention that determines the true value of the gift. So there are actually, in Pali, two separate words for this, um, the inner motivation of generosity and the external expression of that generosity as a gift. 
So the inner quality that motivates the giving is known as chaga, spelled C-A-G-E. And the actual act of giving or the gift itself is the dana. One of my teachers, Gil Fransdell, he describes the significance of this distinction. He said, dana refers to the act of giving and to the donation itself. The Buddha used the word chaga to refer to the inner virtue of generosity that ensures that dana is connected to the path. This use of chaga is particularly significant because it also means relinquishment or renunciation. An act of generosity entails giving more than is required, customary or expected relative to one's resources and circumstances. Certainly, it involves relinquishment of stinginess, of clinging and of greed. In addition, generosity entails relinquishing some aspects of one's self-interest and thus is a giving of oneself. The Buddha stressed that the spiritual efficacy of a gift is dependent not on the amount given, but rather on the attitude with which it's given. A small donation that um, stretches a person of little means is considered of greater spiritual consequence than a large but personally insignificant donation from a very wealthy person. So chaga is the spirit of renunciation or relinquishment that encourages us to stretch ourselves a little while practicing generosity. And I really appreciate that last point, that a small donation from a person of little means is seen as being of greater consequence than a large donation from a wealthy person if it's given uh, in a way that's seen as insignificant. So I had a taste of this when I was volunteering in a prison in the U.S. a few years ago. I was really struck by the generosity of so many of the people who came to our weekly meditation group. Uh, Some of these men literally had nothing, and they were classified as indigent, which means they had no money, basically no possessions whatsoever. And yet almost every week, the men would share stories of how they'd managed to be generous in often quite inventive ways. They were generous to each other, and they were also generous to us, the volunteers. For example, one of the men had done some practice in the Tibetan tradition, and he was concerned that none of the three of us volunteers seemed to have any malas, which are those um, prayer beads that uh, Tibetan practitioners wear on their wrists to help count the mantras that they're reciting. So this man decided that he would make a mala for each of us. And he did it by picking up twigs in the yard and breaking them off and then filing them on the concrete until they were a kind of a roundish shape. And then somehow he was able to, he found a pointy tool and he was able to drill a hole in these beads. Somehow he got hold of some wire and he was able to make three malas. And when he brought them to the group, and gave one to each of us that was such a powerful thing. You know, the actual financial value of that was, who knows? But the fact that he'd put that amount of time and energy into the gift, you can see it still affects me today. It was really an honor to receive that gift. 
So this uh, this is in line with the Buddha's teachings, which is rather than paying attention to the thing that's been given, we really want to pay attention to the mind states behind them. So the Buddha really instructed us to pay attention to what's happening in our hearts and minds with every act of giving. And it, it's this attention to our intention that makes dana into a spiritual practice. So the Buddha invited us to bring as much mindfulness as we can to notice our mind states before, during, and after every act of generosity. These are the actual words from the Anguttara Nikaya. He said, Before giving, glad. While giving, the mind is bright and clear. Having given, one is gratified. This is the consummation of the sacrifice. Do I find this word sacrifice interesting? Because it acknowledges that, yes, there is something that's being given up. Something that might even be quite hard to give up or to let go of. However, that sense of sacrifice is balanced out or compensated for by the skillful mind states that come when we, that we can access before, during and after the act of generosity. If we bring full awareness to what we're doing, then we can experience gladness. As we think about the potential to give, we can experience a bright, clear mind as we're giving. And then afterwards, a sense of gratification or satisfaction or contentment, gladness that we have managed to give. So in starting his teachings, the path of practice with generosity, the Buddha was recognizing that when people make any kind of offering, they're in some ways investing in something. So in English, we talk about putting our money where our mouth is, or perhaps a little more American, we talk about getting buy-in. So there's this sense that when we give something to someone, we're developing a connection with them. We're not just neutral or passive consumers anymore because we've invested a little bit of ourselves even if it's only a very small bit, there starts to be more interest, more engagement with the other person and with what's being offered. And this too highlights a very important aspect of the practice of dana, one that's, I think, sometimes overlooked. It's a relational practice. Because as Gil mentioned, generosity entails relinquishing some aspects of one's self-interest and thus it's a giving of oneself. So it's an invitation to move out of our habitual self-centeredness and to connect with another human being or another being. And to do this, we have to open our hearts and minds at least a little. We also have to let go, to let go of whatever it is that we're giving and also to let go of control to some extent because we don't actually know how the gift will be received. So when we undertake dana as a spiritual practice, at times we can feel quite vulnerable. It takes courage to connect with others, to offer them something of value, and to potentially risk being rejected in some way. 
So we do need to bring wisdom to this practice. And it's the wisdom aspect of dana that makes it a spiritual practice and protects it from being what's sometimes referred to as, quote, foolish generosity. This is a very important point because sometimes when people hear the teachings on generosity, they can feel a sense of fear, as if, oh, I'm supposed to give up everything, to give away everything that I've ever valued. And if I'm not doing that, I'm somehow not practicing properly or deeply enough. But this is a really wrong understanding of generosity because it's lacking in wisdom. This middle way that the Buddha talked about so much is also required in relation to dana. The balance point between the extremes of what could be called foolish generosity on one side and miserliness or stinginess on the other. The Buddha was very clear that we need to consider our own well-being just as much as the other person's. And he made this point many times in his teachings. In the Jataka collection, for example, he emphasized that skillful giving means uh, taking our own resources into consideration. So he said, if you have a little, give a little. If you have a middling amount, give a middling amount. If you have much, give much. So practicing generosity helps the heart and the mind to open. And when the heart and mind are open, the Dharma, the teachings, can be more easily received. And yet, at first, often when we begin to practice generosity, perhaps similar to the Brahma-Vihara qualities that Greg was introducing this afternoon, we have an intention to cultivate skillful qualities and often what we encounter sometimes is the opposite. Sometimes feeling of not being generous, feeling very aware of a sense of contraction or closedness or resistance, not just in the body but in the mind. And often what keeps us from being generous is some form of fear that there isn't enough of something or that we'll miss out in some way. But paradoxically, this fear often has the way of becoming self-fulfilling. So when we have that kind of poverty mentality in the mind, we often create the very situations that we most fear. And again, the Buddha recognized this. He said, what the miser fears that keeps him from giving is the very danger that comes when he doesn't give. What the miser fears that keeps him from giving is the very danger that comes when he doesn't give. So this, when there's mean-spiritedness, I think we've all had the experience of somebody stingy and miserly. We don't feel abundant. We don't want to share things with them. And so the very fear of not having enough actually becomes true for that person. It reinforces a small sense of self, a contracted being who lives in fear of lack. So here on retreat, although we might not have the opportunity in the silence to practice acts of material generosity, what we can do is bring awareness to the inner quality of generosity that I've been referring to as chaga. 
So earlier today, I introduced the three questions as a tool for uh, strengthening mindfulness by bringing awareness to what's happening in the body, what's happening in the heart-mind, and then how are we relating to that experience. So that last question, we can start to notice when we're relating to our experience with, with openness of heart and mind, or perhaps at times the opposite, a sense of being closed or contracted or resisting our experience. And if we notice that sense of tightening or contraction, it's very important not to judge it, not to try and force the heart and mind open or force a kind of inner generosity. I think many of us, at least I have had experiences as a child of being told how we're supposed to act and how we're supposed to feel and how we're supposed to um, show our generosity like share that chocolate with your brother or let your cousin ride your new bike or thank your great aunt for that hand-knitted pink cuckoo clock it smells of lavender you know there's so many ways that we're kind of socialized into um or forced into feeling something that we think we should when we actually don't so not to reinforce that by um feeling putting pressure on ourselves to be generous. But on the other hand, if we do have some capacity to bring awareness to resistance, sometimes it can be as a very powerful antidote to consciously try and connect with other people in some way. So as an example of this, uh, a few years ago, I was um, going through a phase of some pretty deep, unpleasant emotional states and I woke up one morning in what seemed like a very solid negative mind state it actually felt like my mind was wrapped in barbed wire and anything I thought or felt was just very painful and I just had this feeling this there's only one way this day is going and that is downhill but I had just enough mindfulness to think, well, okay, what is there? Is there anything at all that I can do to try and get out of this state? And at the time, I was doing some volunteer work in a hospice. So I thought, well, I don't really have a lot to lose. Perhaps I'll just go over to the hospice and see if I can at least try and make myself useful. So I jumped in the car and it was about a 45-minute ride and all the way I kept thinking, why are you doing this? You're in such a foul mood. Why waste your time? Just go home and go back to bed. But I persevered and when I got to the hospice, I was assigned to meet with a woman who had a huge tumor on her tongue that was visible. And as soon as I sat down in front of her, all of my self-pity and negative afflictive states vanished because at least for me in that moment it was pretty hard to feel sorry for myself when I was sitting face to face with someone who was obviously dealing with a very serious and painful health challenge and she told me with a, a kind of a wry humor that she had been someone who really loved to talk and now it was difficult for her to talk. It was painful. So she asked me if I would share my life story with her. And this was totally not what I wanted to do. It made me realize that actually one of the things I enjoyed about the hospice work was not having to talk to other people, 
but to receive their life stories. So suddenly the tables were turned and I offered her her few, you know, pretty simple stories. Didn't go into a lot of detail, but she was so appreciative. And when I left the hospice half an hour later, I was in a, such a different mood. I was actually unbelievably happy. And it was such a striking contrast in a short space of time to go from tight, contracted, self-absorbed misery to really feeling light and buoyant. So I think it was last night, Greg used this very powerful analogy of the raft, the raft that we used to cross the floods. And he made a very interesting point that that raft comes from, it's assembled from the raw material of our actual lives. And so I was thinking about that metaphor earlier and feeling like, well, this kind of um, dana in some ways is like a, a flotation device. It gives us buoyancy. It helps us stay afloat. If we can remember to pack some dana on the raft, it might help us when we're getting into turbulent times. So for me, that example from the hospice was also a lesson in how often generosity has a way of sort of flipping on itself or turning the tables. I might, I often will start by thinking that I'm doing something for someone else. But as in that example, I end up receiving so much more than I was originally offering. I end up benefiting, often in ways that are quite unforeseen. So this Understanding is captured in some of my favorite lines from Shantideva, the 8th century Tibetan meditation master, where he said, All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come from wanting pleasure for oneself. I think it's worth reading again. All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come from wanting pleasure for oneself. So for those times when we are feeling stuck in our own misery, one powerful antidote is to try to do something for someone else. And a second very powerful antidote when we're feeling closed down in some way, is the practice of gratitude. Being able to appreciate what one has is another facet of generosity that's often overlooked. And the Buddha recognized this in another of his teachings from the Anguttara Nikaya, where he said, These two people are hard to find in the world. Which two? The one who is first to do a kindness and the one who is grateful and thankful for a kindness given. So when we did the Vipassana out loud exercise the other day, focusing first on discomfort in the body and then on more pleasant sensations, many of you reported how what we pay attention to has a very direct effect on our mind states, our mental qualities. So in the same way, uh, consciously turning towards what we can appreciate can have a very beneficial effect on our hearts and minds.
even in the midst of the most intense distress, it can be possible to find least small aspects of our experience that we can appreciate. They don't have to be huge things. So even here at Temawata, I've been noticing these little pulses of joy, for example, when I hear a tui calling from the kofi trees or I see them feeding on the nectar from those yellow flowers or just feeling some appreciation for the warmth of the sun on my shoulders as I'm walking or a sense of delight when we see the beautiful salads that we're being presented with every lunchtime and how um, beautifully decorated they are with all those edible flowers. So some of you may have been doing this kind of appreciation practice already in a more formal way. I know some of you have done James Barras's Awakening Joy course. And a friend and I have been doing a daily gratitude practice with each other by email for over a year now. And I've really noticed how just that daily, almost a discipline of writing down 10 things at the end of every day that I've appreciated and receiving them from her, over time it's really shifted my set point. It's really strengthened my capacity to feel this quality of appreciation or gratitude. And one of the things I'm grateful for in relation to gratitude practice is that it is a practice. And it's possible to develop the gratitude muscle, so to speak, Because definitely early on, actually for most of my life, gratitude wasn't something that came easily. I don't think that I'm alone in this because learning to open to and to appreciate what we're being offered can challenge some really deep conditioning. And I'd like to share one more example from my own experience in relation to this. So as some of you know, uh, pretty early on, after I first came into contact with these teachings, I had the opportunity to go and be a, a temporary manager at a meditation center in the Blue Mountains in Australia, a couple of hours west of Sydney. And before that opportunity came up, I'd been working as an architect in Melbourne, and I gave up my job to travel to New South Wales and to live at that center. And at that time, the job was only part-time, and it was paid a pretty small stipend. So I went from having a professional salary to suddenly having a lot less money than I was used to. And I was in a new state. I didn't know anybody in New South Wales. I didn't own a car. And so from the moment that I arrived, I was really dependent on people in the community to help me. And they were amazingly generous. They brought me warm clothes because the Blue Mountains was very cold. They took me out for meals and they drove me into town to do the shopping. And Some of them offered me free dental treatment and they offered me the use of their holiday cottage at the beach when I needed a break. So to name just a few examples of all that was offered to me in that time. And it was very beautiful to be on the receiving end of so much generosity but it also showed me my conditioning about wanting to be self-reliant and independent and I realized that I felt much more comfortable being the one to offer generosity than the one to receive it 
because I had an unconscious belief that somehow receiving things from others made me inferior to them or put me in their debt. But as I explored the Buddha's teachings in more depths, I started to recognize that these beliefs were a kind of a wrong view and that I was my attachment to being strong and independent and self-reliant and my fear of being dependent on other people was really unhelpful. And gradually, through bringing awareness to all of this conditioning, these views started to dissolve and I was able to more comfortably accept what people offered me with genuine appreciation. But then I ended up staying at that center for three years, so the original six months expanded by quite a long time. And towards the end of my time there, I started to feel like I would like to do some longer-term practice. But because I had so little money, I wasn't sure how to go about doing this. And I'd heard about the three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, where I met Greg. And I had a look at their website, but their three-month retreat just seemed incredibly expensive by Australian standards, particularly because back then the Australian dollar was worth about half the US dollar. And so by the time I'd totted up the cost of the airfare and dana for the teachers, it just seemed completely crazy. But a few days later, I was having a cup of tea with one of the committee members and we were talking about the benefits of long-term practice. And I mentioned to him that I'd been interested in doing this retreat, but it seemed financially impossible. And he said, well, why don't we put it in the newsletter that you'd like to do that and see what happens? And at first I was kind of horrified. But then I thought, well... It's not going to do anything, so why not? So I kind of grudgingly said, okay. And to my surprise, after the newsletter went out, donations, I'm going to cry. (laughs) Donations started to arrive from people all over the world. People from Sydney, including members of the Burmese community who are refugees and even someone from New Zealand who I never met. Maybe it's one of you, I don't know. But she wrote and said that she had done the three-month retreat at IMS and it was one of the best experiences of her life. So she would like to support me to do the same thing. So it was so humbling and obviously still pretty moved by it to just be receiving all of this generosity. And at first it was really daunting because I'd think... I don't deserve it. You know, these are refugees who are giving me their money. And what if I don't last the distance? I'll have to pay them back. That would be embarrassing. (laughs) So every time a donation came in, I would feel at first this kind of cringe of unworthiness. But then again, as I worked it, I realized, well, that's actually not receiving what's being offered in the spirit that it's offered. So I sort of made a resolution that I would try and meet these donations in the appropriate spirit. And long story short, I received donations from them and from IMS and my own savings. I was able to go and do that retreat. But the generosity didn't stop there. It had another unexpected aspect to it. 
And that was when I was actually on the retreat because people had put money on me in a way. I felt this sense of not pressure, but obligation to make some effort. So if it got to eight o'clock at night and I was feeling tired, you know, my first impulse might be to just have a cup of tea and call it a night. But because Dor Auntie Pion had sent me money, I'd think, no, I'll do, I'll do another couple of sessions for her or whoever. I had a list of all the people who'd given me money. And at the end of each night, I would just write a little gratitude letter. And at the end of the retreat, I posted it to them. So this sense of connection was very powerful. It was almost as powerful as the money that actually got me there. So, what I wanted to share the story because uh, we might start with the intention to give money or gifts to someone, but it's equally the openness of heart and openness of mind that can make the gift uh, a truly transformative experience. And here on retreat, even in the silence, I hope that all of us can continue developing chaga as a spiritual practice to keep turning towards the possibility of opening the heart and mind so that we can connect with the Dharma on deeper and deeper levels. So we can connect with the Dharma, we can connect with ourselves on deeper and deeper levels. And when we come out of the silence, we can connect with each other too on deeper and deeper levels. So may our practice of dana lead all the way to the highest happiness, the freedom of nibbana. Thank you for your generous attention. Let's sit in silence for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.